that's uh yeah, it's us, right? We're we're the white meat that they want to eat. Mm hmm. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, we need to educate these Amish. Ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here. This is Eurofolk Radio, and this is Bloodlines for September 22, 2019. And I'm in northeast Indiana. I drove across the state, northern border of the state of Indiana, yesterday. And talk about Amish country. It's really something. Uh, all these buggies and uh, horse-drawn buggies all, all over the place. Uh, there's a lot of Amish around here. And they are fertile ground. I was just talking to Roger about how the Amish are fertile ground for Christian identity teaching because they're de facto white segregationists, whether they have the ideology of that or not. That's what they actually practice. So they're fertile ground for Christian identity. And uh, so uh, I I met uh, yesterday with John and Donald, and now I'm I'm with Roger, and we're doing uh, all kinds of uh, identity discussion uh, and uh, we're going to have a church service today at two o'clock so looking forward to that so anyway welcome everybody uh, we're going to be continuing our series on the enmity but before we go into that I want to talk a little bit about the feast days because we are in the middle of the feast of trumpets and uh, I just want to and brother Aber is going to be doing a series I think today at uh, noon east uh, central time one eastern time He's going to be talking about the Feast of Trumpets as well. But I just want to quickly go over, because uh, a lot of people ask me, what uh, what do we do during the Feast of Trumpets? Of all the feasts, the Feast of Trumpets is the, the least demanding. It doesn't require us to do a whole lot. But it's a, it's a Feast of Preparation. The trumpet is sounding for the last time. <laughs> uh, the, the last time we have the Feast of Trumpets on the fall equinox, the, the skies are going to be blasting a very, very loud sound that you can't miss. You can't mistake. It's going to be the last trump, as Paul puts it. But regarding all of the, uh, the entire feast day calendar, I just want to point out that the first three feast days which were fulfilled at the first advent by Yahshua Messiah, were fulfilled in rapid succession, one day after another. Boom, boom, boom. There's no delay between Passover, the Sabbath that begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the wave sheaf. Those are three consecutive days, and that's, they're fulfilled in quick order. So when Yahshua was here for the first time, those three feast days were fulfilled in rapid order, 
And then he returned to show himself for the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days later. And so that's, that's a standalone feast. And then in the fall, which represents the second coming, the second coming and the last trump, Feast of Trumpets, is the last trump. Let me just quote here from Numbers 29.1. On the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets. Well, sound the alarm, okay? Sound the alarm, get ready. So all of these fall feasts are set for us to prepare ourselves for the day of judgment. That's what these fall feasts are all about. When Yahshua will literally come back, just like uh, in, uh, in the book of Acts, we are told that just as you see him uh, leaving this plane, going up into the sky, into the heavens, so shall he return. So those of us who are ready, <laughs> and, and the more I talk with identity people all over the country, uh, they all agree there are very, very few people who are going to be ready. Most people are going to get absolutely shocked when the end comes because they won't be ready for it. Number one, even the, the Christians don't believe. They don't believe in the scriptures. They're, they're kind of like... Uh, you know, old hat, old-fashioned storytelling that has no relevance in their lives. And certainly the pastors, the, the pulpit masters or to, pulpit bastards, whichever you prefer, some are better than others, that uh, they're not going to teach this stuff. Even, uh, John Hagee, he, he even denies that Yahshua is the Messiah. He even denies it. So uh, these people aren't going to be ready. Certainly the Jews are not going to be ready. But uh, this is definitely the last trump for the Jews. All right. So uh, we're to use the Feast of Trumpets to prepare ourselves for the coming Feast of the Day of Atonement, in which we have to fast all day and uh, basically atone for our uh, past sins and uh, swear not to do those things again. And uh, that's to... how should I put it? You know, renounce this world. Actually, is that that's what that's about? Is renouncing this world. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, we actually set up tents, pup tents, or any kind of shelter outside t- shelter, and we're supposed to sleep in an outside outside shelter for seven days, uh, in preparation for well, what's coming, folks? What's coming? The total collapse of society. We're not going to have any electricity. Uh, there won't be. You may may have some propane left in your propane tank, right? If you're lucky, you'll have firewood in a fireplace. But it's going to get to the point where civilization is going to completely collapse, and you will be on your own. So the more prepared you are for this, and you will be living outside, whether you want to or not, because maybe uh, it's cold outside, and uh, if you if you can't. Uh, burn wood in your house it's going to be difficult to stay warm so uh, uh, everything and for example there i believe it was 1974 in northeast canada there was a solar flare that wiped out the grid the electric grid in uh, northeastern canada in the middle of winter and these people had a horrible time trying to survive because you know canada gets a lot colder than the northern united states so 
they had a really difficult time surviving just for the two or three months. So you have to be prepared to ride this thing out for as long as Yahweh decides that we're supposed to. So be prepared. These fall feasts are all about preparation for the Day of Judgment, the Second Coming, and, of course, we know in, in identity, the annihilation of the Edomites. And we look forward to that day with, with great anticipation. And uh, Ezekiel 36:24, still regarding the Feast of Trumps, Trumpets, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And of course, wherever Israel sets our feet, that is our land, uh, according to Joshua. Okay, and the trumpets will announce the second coming of Jesus Christ. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. It's going to be louder than thunder, folks. It's going to be ear-shattering. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have died and are in their graves waiting for this day. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together in the, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that's in the spirit. It's not literally air here. And so we will be with Yahshua forever. That's First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. So the Feast of Trumpets is all about warning each other to get ready for the end times. Now, it's obviously not this year because uh, the Feast of Trumpets, the first day, there wasn't a loud clap of thunder <laughs> that will be heard across the world. All right, The very last Feast of Trumpets will start with a huge clash of thunder. Yeah, that's Yahweh blowing his trumpet and warning us, this is it. This is it, folks. This is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. And we know we're really close. We know we're really close. And uh, many of us are disappointed <laughs> when, when the Feast of Trumpets doesn't start with a big big old clap of thunder heard across the world. Of course, the lightning, when Yahshua said when he returns, uh, everybody will know it. It'll be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. Uh, there'll be no mistake when he returns. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 Behold, I will show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay? So we're going to put on our spirit bodies, our incorruptible spirit bodies, to enter the kingdom with. Because if you don't have this spirit body, you won't be able to uh, be part of the kingdom establishment, the government. The, all all knees will bow toward to him. And anybody who doesn't, uh, you're, you're toast. You're going to be toast. Okay, so all of the overcomers will be changed. And those who have died in previous eras, being faithful to Yahshua, will also arise from the dead and we will join them and then we will enter the kingdom after the wedding feast of the Lamb. Okay, Day of Atonement. The tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering made to Yahweh by fire. So uh, we're, not, we're supposed to 
deny ourselves uh, food and uh, some say even water. I don't know if you can go 24 hours without a drop of water, but uh, if, give it a try. Certainly without food. You have to be with, uh, go without food. And, uh, and I don't have my calendar in front of me. I'm uh, on the road. I'm in uh, northeast Indiana. So uh, it's very important for us to have a day of cleansing that is by fasting and atonement for our sins. You simply confess your sins to Yahweh and uh, swear, that is repent, swear you won't do that stuff again. Okay, Feast of Tabernacles. Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, Yahweh's Feast of Tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. Actually, it lasts for eight days because it begins and ends. Oh, thank you. Uh, it begins and ends with the Sabbath day. So, uh, and then uh, this is to be a feast of celebration because what? It represents the second coming. Yahshua comes to tabernacle with us. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. So the uh, Feast of Trumpets is the warning to get ready for the second coming because it's going to be bang, bang, bang. These three feasts are all going to happen. The final, the final uh, rendition of the fall feasts is going to happen one of these years. It's not going to be spread out from one year to another folks so when the trumpet blasts at the fall equinox one of these coming years and you hear this really loud global clap of thunder and it may even be an intelligible clap of thunder it may be Yahweh speaking to us saying get ready then we've got uh, 10 days before day of atonement and then uh, you better you better make your you better repent of all your sins and fast because this will be the last time your last chance to get ready. And then if you haven't prepared yourself, Book of Revelation says, if you are uh, sinful, be sinful still. If you are righteous, be righteous still because it's, after this date it's too late. You cannot repent any longer. And then the Feast of Tabernacles is the return of Yahshua, second coming, wedding feast of the Lamb. So the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible, Bible Commentary tells us this, quote, The Israelites were commanded during the whole period of the festival to dwell in booths, which were erected on the flat roofs of houses, in the streets or fields, and trees made use of uh, stated to be the citron, palm, the myrtle, the willow, while others maintain the people were allowed to take any trees they could obtain that were distinguished for verdure or in, and fragrance. You can just put up a makeshift shelter, is basically what this is saying. While the solid, you're supposed to go outside because this symbolizes the collapse of civilization. There's not going to be any, you won't be able to rely on the UPS truck to deliver your goodies, folks. It happening. There won't be any gasoline. The, the gas stations probably will have been blown up. And there is no, there's no such thing as commerce happening anymore. So you better be ready for the end because this is it. Feast of Tabernacles represents the end where you have to make a makeshift shelter. If you're lucky, you can stay in, the, in your own house. If you've got provisions and able to heat, 
heat the place, etc., etc. But uh, most people won't be that lucky. Okay, most people won't be prepared. Uh, only those of an, in an identity, the overcomers, have any idea of what's coming. Most people are just going to be caught by surprise. So, uh, the Psalm 118, 15, 25, 26 uh, commentary here. Hosanna, which signifies, save, we beseech thee. Okay, that's what the word Hosanna means. That last day was the eighth, and on account of the scene at Siloam, was called the great day of the feast, the feast of ingathering, when the vintage was over. This is the harvest of souls, folks. This is the harvest of our Israelite souls was celebrated also on that day. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. I forget the uh, passage uh, that's in the New Testament. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. And as the conclusion of one of the great festivals, it was kept as a Sabbath. Okay? So the last great day is symbolic of the triumphant return of our Savior when Yasha returns with his angels to avenge his and our enemies. Hosanna in the highest never thought I'd be saying that. Beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival of Yahweh for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day is also a day of rest. That's Leviticus 23:39. On the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And of course, he's speaking of Israelites here. I come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But we're supposed to be the city on the hill. We're supposed to be the example to other potentially good people, whether they're Israelites or just Adamites or even of other races, as we have told you that uh, this is the, going to be the great restoration of the dominion of Adam over the planet Earth, with Yahshua being our leader, our governor. And he, he prophesies that every one of us who qualify will be the leader, mayor, uh, king of a city. He will give us dominion over cities. But you have to qualify. You have to be a righteous, compassionate Israelite to qualify for such a position. If you're if you're a Scrooge or if you're a cheap Jew, <laughs> you're not going to get any such position. You'd be lucky if you make it into the kingdom under any circumstances, let alone being part of the government. The government is reserved for the 144,000 of the 12 tribes, the city four square. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit. Okay, why twelve? Well, it's the twelve tribes of Israel, folks. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. See also Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So that's what the three fall feasts are all about. They're about preparing ourselves mentally and physically and spiritually for the end. Like that song the Doors wrote, this is the end, folks. 
this is the end. Okay, so before before we continue with our study of the enmity series and the documentation of the two seed lines coming from Genesis, actually they, they come from Genesis 3.1, but uh, most specifically from Genesis 3.15. Last week we talked at length about Genesis 4.1 and the problems of translating that verse. It's really not hard to translate that verse, but it has been corrupted. And uh, I showed very clearly that uh, Eve is not talking, she's not saying that she got Cain via Yahweh. That uh, that word is not the correct uh, translation. And with the help of is the Jewish translation. That's false. It means, that word simply means nearness. F means nearness. And so that's a very suggestive translation by the Jewish translation, which suggests that Yahweh may have impregnated Eve and that she got Cain. No, that's not the case. Cain, uh, Cain was the product of Nachash, the fallen angel that impregnated Eve with his seed. And then clearly from Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, we see the two seed lines being documented and they have... Uh, totally separate histories and uh, trajectories throughout history. Okay, so uh, I just, uh, and this is the research done by Brother Aber, documenting the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles has been kept by Christians throughout history. I know with, even within identity, there are a lot of groups who don't, you know, say, oh, they say you don't have to practice these feasts. However, in the Old Testament, we are told to commemorate these feasts. We don't have to sacrifice lambs or do. In fact, all the sacrifices are done away with, and even the oblations, which means those were gifts that the Israelites gave to the priesthood for the forgiveness of sin, and uh, that happened once a year. But that's that's not the case anymore. We don't have those sacrifices. The sacrificial system is done away with. Now, Andy and I have started a two-part series. It may go to three parts. But uh, the fact is that the Jews want to build a third temple and reestablish animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. And how any Christian can go along with this, knowing that Yahshua was the last sacrifice... If you read your Bible, you would know that. But Christians don't read their Bibles. They, they listen to their pulpit bastards, and they have no idea what's in the Bible. I grew up Catholic. I never, they never asked me to read the Bible. They gave me a missal, which was their condensed version of the Bible. And, uh, and then they gave us the Catholic spin on the missal. So it's dogma. It's, they don't want you to think for yourself. They want you to think like the Pope. Right, so there there are Catholics who are more Catholic than the Pope, because the Pope is a pedophile, and uh, he doesn't believe that stuff. He's a communist. He's a soft core communist. Ever since 1963, the papacy has been rank evil, communism, pedophilia, you name it, anything goes in the Vatican these days. Just like the rest of society, it seems like the only people that are still moral who have a moral quotient are those of us in identity who obey Yahweh's laws. We are not antinomians. We do not believe the law was done away with because it wasn't done away with. That's horrible interpretation of the New Testament. 
So anyway, let, let me quote here from, uh, this is research done by Brother Hebert, Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, volume 8, page 828. The first Christians continued to observe the fast festivals, though in a new spirit, as commemorations of events which those festivals had foreshadowed. So that's exactly what the scriptures tell us to do, to commemorate these events without having to do animal sacrifices and also without having the Levitical priesthood to issue punishments of violations. Now it's between you and Yahweh. He knows when you sin. You know when you sin. So it's up to you to make those corrections. And your last chance to make the corrections is going to be the Feast of Atonement on the last fall feast uh, era episode. According to St. Jerome, Polycarp also kept the Feast of Tabernacles in the 2nd century in Asia Minor. Polycarp was a 2nd century Christian bishop of Smyrna. According to the martyrdom of Polycarp, he died a martyr, bound and burned at the stake, then stabbed when the fire failed to touch him. <laughs> okay, and we kill you twice. Polycarp is regarded as a saint and the church father in the Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, and Lutheran churches. So I think he covered all the bases. He just hit a home run. His name, Polycarp, means much fruit in Greek. It is recorded by Irenaeus, who heard him speak in his youth, and by Tertullian, that he had been a disciple of John the Apostle. St. Jerome wrote that Polycarp was a disciple of John and that John had ordained him Bishop of Smyrna because the Smyrnian letter known by the, as the martyrdom of Polycarp states that Polycarp was taken on the day of the Sabbath and killed on the great Sabbath. Some believe that this is evidence that the Smyrnians under Polycarp observed the seventh day Sabbath, in other words, an eighth day feast. They would only call that day a great day if it was the end of a, an eight-day feast. So, in the late 3rd or early 4th century, Greco-Roman bishop St. Methodius of Olympus taught that the Feast of Tabernacles was commanded to be observed by Christians and that it be held valuable. It held valuable lessons for them, which is what we're teaching you right, right now. These fall feasts are for your preparedness to get yourself ready for the second coming if you and it's really getting close to the end one of these next few years it's going to be the last episode of fall feast so thanks for uh you know indulging me on that and uh, we're going to get into the the study of adam hold on i have to get back to the right page here Okay, oh yeah, Wayback Machine, Genesis 1 and 2. Here we go, Adam. We have to do the word studies of the Hebrew words if you want to understand the Bible. And this is, uh, you can go to the Wayback Machine and type in www.anglo-saxonisrael.com and uh, go to Genesis 1 and 2. You have to scroll all the way down on the left-hand side. It's a live site. My website is down because it's being rebuilt, but the Wayback Machine has a live copy, and you go all the way down in the left column, Genesis 1 and 2 is very close to the bottom, just before the uh, section on Jesus was not a Jew. 
And so from Genesis 1 and 2, the word Adam, a word that shares a similar range of meanings with an English word is the word Adam. Just as the modern English word man can mean the whole race, including both sexes, so can the Hebrew word Adam mean the whole race, a portion thereof, or an individual Adamite, male or female. Just as in the Bible, the word Adam can also be the proper name of a particular individual. Here again, the KJV translators have established a false tradition, by which the Hebrew word Adam is used to mean all races, when it can only mean that race which shows blood in the face. This is probably the most glaring error that all creationists make, as none of them seem to be able to use a strongest concordance, which clearly states that the meaning of the word is to, quote, show blood in the face, unquote. Now, you may have a more recently copy of Strong's Concordance, and it may have deleted this definition. I've got a really old version that I bought in 1972, and that version clearly says Adam means to show blood in the face. They may have doctored the more recent version. They're producing all kinds of bastardized versions of the Bible all the time. The, the, the gender-neutral Bible is okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, was Abraham our father and Sarah our mother, or is it the other way around? Also, there are many different Hebrew words which are translated as man. But the Hebrew words do not mean man in the sense of all races. For example, ish. Ish means mortal man. The ish does not specify whether the mortal shows blood in the face or not. So ish can mean a mortal of any race. And that is how the Bible uses the term. But both, both words, Adam and ish, are translated man. So you can't tell the difference of what the Hebrew is actually saying unless you use a concordance and look up the word in the context of that passage. That's what you have to do to understand the Bible. If you're not doing that, you can't understand the Bible. The word ish can also mean the male of any species. So it doesn't even have to be a humanoid. To wit, Genesis 7-2, Every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens. The male, ish, and the female, I believe it's isha, and of beasts, behema, that are not clean, by two, the male, ish, and his female, isha. Alright, so here the word ish is referring to non-humanoid males. How can you use the word man to, to translate ish? You should have not done this generic translation. You should have kept the words specific as they are in Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, Adam means Adamite. Adam kind. And that's how it should have been translated. And male is ish. That's okay. In Genesis 7-2, that's good. Because the context is telling you, you're talking about clean and unclean beasts. And we don't sacrifice humans, folks. So it cannot be a human. And of course, we're talking about sheep and goats and, and blah, blah, blah. The two males, Strong's 376, I mean, ish, in this verse are definitely not humanoid, as they are of the clean and unclean beasts that were taken into the Ark of Noah. 
Again, contrast this with the word Adam, which can only mean that race which shows blood in the face. The Bible is a history book about that race, and don't let anybody tell you that it's something else. Since the race mixers of this world want to argue that all races came from Adam, uh, geneticists will tell you that's not possible either, they want to justify their dogma with a false interpretation of Scripture. Now here's something very interesting going on, folks, because we see that the mainstream scientists and the mainstream Judeo-Christians are very happy to promote these false points of view and point fingers at each other and call each other stupid or faithless or what have you and keep the world flummoxed as to which side to go with. And of course, if you're secularly minded, then you can see, right, you can see through the holes in the six-day creationist dogma because they haven't done the word studies. And then you will, you will fail to become a Christian because of this nonsensical teaching that all races come from Adam and Eve. Of course, and now the, the university people, the academics will tell you, all races came from some, some black woman <laughs> in southern Africa. That's garbage too. Both of those doctrines are garbage. The word clearly tells us that Yahweh created all these species separately, one from another, and they are not to mix. Genesis 1.11, period. Those that have the, the re, reproduce kind after kind and have their seed within themselves. That defines a species. And these species have always reproduced accordingly. Wheat has always produced wheat. Corn has always produced corn. Adamites have always produced Adamites. Blacks have always produced Blacks. Asians have always produced Asians. Until somebody came along. Some, uh, some deceiver came along and said, No, you have to mix all the races into one polyglot. Was that Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, she was one of those deceivers. So if Yahweh wanted all the races mixed together, why were they ever separated? Uh, yeah, what's the, what's the point of that? You know, why would he create them all separate if if he wants them to be all mixed together? Can some creationist answer this question? Can a evolutionist answer any of these questions? They, today they're saying race is a, is a social, no, not even social, a mental construct. But that's not what genetics says. Genetics says these species produce kind after kind. And they do not evolve. That's what genetics says, folks. Continuing with uh, the, the uh, text here. The reality is that each of the races was created separately in a particular habitat. Hyenas were created in, in hyena land. Wild dogs were created in wild dog land. Foxes in fox land. Uh, what do you call those dogs up in Siberia? Right? Huskies. Yeah, they... they live in husky land and they rarely encountered each other same with bears the, the uh, polar bears rarely encounter uh, brown bears or black bears and in the wild they will fight each other and kill each other before they will mate although it's in very rare rare instances uh, polar a polar bear has been observed mating with a large black bear but that's very rare uh, they usually will kill each other Okay, so I guess if you if you catch the uh, species 
in their rutting season, that might happen. But uh, ordinarily, these species will kill each other. So uh, the, the idea that, that these species will naturally integrate is simply false. It doesn't happen. Okay, the reality is that each of these races were in a particular habitat. And each race developed in that particular habitat until the white race began its exploratory dispensation, as described in Genesis 10. There were no other races exploring the world. It was only our race that did that. The Amerindians of South America are completely different from the black Africans, who are completely different from the Mongoloids of Asia, who are completely different from the white race. That's racial reality. In Old Testament times, no mingling of these different types of seed ever occurred, except with the Canaanites of Scripture. When such mingling did occur, it was because one or the other race wandered out of its original habitat. The Israelites, who were unmixed Adamites, were absolutely forbidden from intermarrying with the Canaanites. See Deuteronomy 7.3, and these Canaanites were the most closely related to the Israelites. And uh, because they, because uh, uh, they had some Hamite blood, Deuteronomy seven three, Second uh, Corinthians ten six. There is no evidence that in the Old Testament times that the blacks, Amerindians, or Mongoloids ever wandered out of their original habitat, and the blacks never did. They were taken out of their habitat by the Jewish slavers. And if they did wander out of their habitat, there was war, or they were enslaved. The fossil evidence of these respective races exists in their original habitat well before the garden story, nor is there a single piece of evidence that any evolutionary changes have taken place in these distinct races in the last 12,000 years. If there were evolution, 12,000 years should at least show some change, some evolution. Maybe blacks would get bigger brains, uh, smarter. Uh, that hasn't happened, folks. Just has not happened. White explorers had to first discover the existence of blacks in Africa and Amerinds in America. Then the imperialism of the Catholic Church. You know, I have to laugh when these Latinos talk about the you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and uh, the uh, supremacism, white supremacism and the white patriarchy. It was the Catholic Church that invaded South America and Central America and enslaved the natives. So don't blame us. Don't blame us wasps. Blame the Catholic Church. And they sent missionaries to convert them by the sword. That wasn't us. That was the Catholic Church. Why are you fraternizing, all of you Aztecians, those, those mestizos who claim to be Aztecs, and they want to reestablish Aslan. You're not even Indians. You're mestizos. You're mixed. So don't even pretend that you're Aztecs. You're just doing, following the instructions of your Jewish overlords when you adopt communism and attack the white race. Well, if you want war, you will get it. This is how the races began to be intermingled by Jewish agitation. There is no, absolutely no evidence of any kind that all races emerge from a single pair of hominids. Zero. 
That is pure unscientific fiction. That is evolution. Which is taught as dogma by both the creationists and the evolutionists. They are more alike than they are different. Their dogmas vary only with the amount of time involved in the evolution. Evolutionists require millions of years for their evolutionary steps, while the creationists say it all happened in seven literal days. Then, in addition, the creationists say that it all happened again after Noah's flood, when all of these totally destroyed habitats were somehow repopulated by the same exact species that were there before. How's that for coincidence? The most succinct way that I can put the situation is this. Evolutionism is not scientific, and creationism is not scriptural. You can, you can figure out the rest for yourselves. Okay, let's get into Genesis 1 and the word Adam. The best way to understand the different usages of the word Adam in Genesis 1 and 2 is this. In Genesis 1, verses 26 to 27, the Bible is describing creation bara of the Adamic race. Male and female together. Male and female, he created them, remember? He didn't create Adam first. That, that was in Genesis chapter 2, where he formed Adam first and then formed Eve. And male and female, and that word is yatsar. It's a do- totally different Hebrew word. Okay, Scripture does not deal with Adam and Eve as individuals until Genesis 2, after the yaum of rest. And the word yaum can mean an era or age or epoch. And I was just talking with Roger about the, the, uh, this, the, the passage where it says, and the evening and the morning shall be the first day. Well, if you count from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., that's only 12 hours. It's a metaphorical statement. It's not to be taken literally. So, at, at Genesis 1.26, we are informed, let us make man, that is Adam, generic for the race, male and female, in our, plural, our image. So, these uh, angels, these angelic beings, the Elohim, they, these are not fallen angels, but it's, it's certainly possible that the fallen ones emanated from these Elohim. In our image, so as is typical for everything that Yahweh creates, he has a prototype or a blueprint in the spiritual world that the physical object or a physical being is based upon. So this is telling us that we, the white race, were made in the image of Elohim. And they had male and female images in heaven. does not mean that they were uh, reproducing in heaven because they didn't have physical bodies to reproduce. They were that that they were simply blueprint blueprint type being, but living, spiritually living, blueprint beings upon which our physical bodies are based. Just as all of the other living creatures of Genesis had to be created both sexes at the same time, so they could immediately reproduce. The Adamic race was created both sexes at the same time, so they also could immediately reproduce. It is not the case, as Fink and Emheiser maintain, that Genesis 1.26 is referring to the individual man Adam. All of Genesis 1 is devoted to the creation of species. Genesis 1.26 is clearly referring to the species, just as the words after their kind, plural, 
referred to the various species in the previous verses of Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 is about the creation of species, and in, if they're mammals, and, and, and uh, beneath mammals, if they reproduce sexually, they're, they're talking about the creation of both at the same time. The rest of Genesis 1.26 treats Adam in the plural, not singular. So, we see that the singular usage only begins in Genesis chapter 2. Although Genesis 1.27 treats Elohim as a collective singular, it still treats Adam as a plural. In the image of Elohim created he them, male and female he created bara them, both the grammar and the positing of both sexes, sexes prove the point. Genesis 5.1.2 states, In the day, Yaum, that Elohim created bara, Adam, male and female, he created them. So it's telling us that the day that they were created, they were created both male and female. Double witness. And blessed them, plural, not him, them, and call their, plural, not him, call their name Adam, meaning Adam kind. In the day when they, plural, were created. This is kind of like a quintuple witness here. Genesis 5 is here referring back to Genesis 1. This proves again that the word Adam in Genesis 1 is applied to both male and female in the Yaum, that is the era the epoch that the white race was created. Their name is Adam. Our name is Adam. Adam kind. And that's how it should have been translated in the scriptures. Not man. That's a horrible translation. Adam kind is the correct translation for Adam. And it should never vary from that. As with the English word man, here we have the generic use of the word Adam applied to the species, not to an individual. We will see in Genesis 2, the Hebrew words surrounding the individual Adam and the individual woman Eve are quite different in their usage, especially with the verb Yatsar, which means formed, versus bara in Genesis 1, which means created. Created means something brand new. Form means taking something which already exists and changing it. And that's what he did to Adam when he breathed the breath of life into him. He changed his DNA so it could receive the Holy Spirit, which it had not had up to that point in time. And the same thing was done with Eve. In addition, Yahshua gives us confirming evidence that Genesis 1.26 is a reference to the race and not to the single individual Adam. Matthew 19, 4, 5. Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? That Adam was created first and then Eve. He made the species, both male and female, first. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And of course we're talking about marriage. Mark 10, 6-7 But from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. So from the very beginning Elohim made them male and female. It doesn't say he made Adam first and then Eve. 
That doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 2. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and start his own family. So, from the beginning, they were male and female, not male first and female second, as many people falsely believe, because of the scenario in Genesis 2, and because of the confusion concerning the word man in Genesis 1 and 2. Here is another precept that you can take to the bank and collect interest on. Genesis 1.26 describes the creation of the race, but Genesis 2 7 through 25 describes a selection of two individuals, one male, one female, of that race for a special formation, Yatsar, that did not take place until after the seventh Yaum, that is, Epoch, or Eon, the Yaum of rest. Bertrand Camperet agrees that Genesis 1 is a Genesis 2 is about the individuals in the garden. And there's many people who have analyzed these verses have come to the same conclusion. So what Fink and Emheiser are teaching about Genesis 1 and 2 is simply false. They do this because they want to say that Eve, all, all of the races are uh, hybrids of Eve and the fallen Eve, and that is the Edomites, the Kenites. Okay, so let's continue. Uh, this is what Bertrand Compare has to say about the subject. The Bible tells us about the creation of men in the plural in Genesis 1, 26-28, saying, Male and female he created them, verse 27. And God told these people, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish, replenish, refill the earth, because a big catastrophe happened, as we talked about last week, the gap theory between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, 1, 1, and 1, 2, there was, the, the earth was not created void. <laughs> it became void. It had become void. So something clearly has uh, happened uh, you know, to the old order and had to be renewed. That's what we're talking, replenishing, renewing the earth. In the next chapter, Genesis 2, we find the Adam in the singular, Formed. Oh, he uses the word created. The Hebrew word Adam, rendered Adam in English, is from a root word meaning to show blood in the face or of a obviously not applicable to the dark races, which we also know from scientific evidence to be much older than the white race. Adam was not the first man. This is a, an article by Bertrand Compare by that title, and you can just do an internet search for it. Just type in, Adam was not the first man by Bertrand Compare, and, and many copies of this will come up. There is no possibility that the stories of Genesis 1 and 2 are contemporaneous. They were told to be fruitful and multiply before the garden events. The garden doesn't appear until Genesis chapter 2. Both the Hebrew language and the logical sequence of events prove conclusively that they are in chronological order not an assemblage of contemporaneous events. In fact, Genesis 2 would thus be the only chapter of the Pentateuch, which would not be in chronological order. And they're all in chronological order. Genesis 1 is about the creation of the various species that exist on the entire planet. The subject matter of Genesis 2 is localized to the Garden of Eden after all of these species are already in existence 
and this we know has been a period of thousands of years, at the very least, least 6,000 years, but probably a lot more. In essence, those who argue that the male of our species was created before the female of our species have not paid attention to the Hebrew grammar or the order of events. Now, Genesis 2, 7 through 25. Let me take a quick look at the chat room here. I'm uh, working off my laptop, and it's uh, it's kind of it's working slowly. <laughs> it's working slowly. Okay, <laughs> Swamp Fox says Mexicans don't like it when you call them mestizos. What do you think the word Mexican means? Right? It means mixed. That's what it means. Okay. Yeah, and, and uh, spoiler alert says yeah. Fun fact: cleave is the only word in English which has opposite meanings. To hold together or to divide apart. That is a good observation. That can be confusing, can't it, folks? Right? Cleave unto your wife? Or cleave? use a cleaver to chop, to chop something in half? Okay, how that word ha- had uh, somehow... Yes, it does have direct opposite meanings depending on the context. Okay, here is Arnold Kennedy's view of the subject. Now, Arnold Kennedy was not a two-seed liner. He was a single-seed liner, but he understood about racial segregation and, ra- and racial separation. He taught, uh, and, and most non-seed liners teach that too, but they don't understand that the Jews are of the devil's spawn. That They don't understand. They, they know the Jews are evil, but they don't want to admit that Eve was seduced in the garden and produced Cain. They don't want to go that far with it. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, he says, we have Adam mentioned in the Masoretic text, but not in the Greek Septuagint of Genesis. One, oh, Genesis 1. Scholars may not agree, but early translators, including the KJV, indicate plural in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 5, 2, which I just quoted, but singular in chapter 2. Even ignoring this, we have a man and a woman, them, being created, bara, in Genesis 1, before the Adam, singular, who was formed, yatsar, in Genesis 2. Okay, so Arnold Kennedy is right with us in this analysis. He's saying, making the exact same argument that I have made, that uh, Bertrand Compare has made, and now him. Created and formed have different meanings. We cannot remain honest if we try to say that created is the same as formed. Bara is not the same as Yatsar. And he says the same goes for Plasso and Catizo in the New Testament. From the sequence alone, there is no way Genesis 2 could be a rerun of Genesis 1. On a weight of evidence basis, there is more to say that Adam, as we use the word, was the first spiritual man, but not the first biological man. Now, I disagree with this, that uh, there's nothing spiritual <laughs> about Adam in, in Genesis 1, and the spirituality didn't come until Genesis 2. In other words, God took one... Okay, but here he explains himself. In other words, God took one man from Genesis 1 and breathed into him the breath of life, and this is Genesis 2.7, and man became a living soul. In other words, Yahweh breathed his spirit into Adam. 
The word became is consistently used in a manner showing the subject became something that had not been before. This individual man became something that he was not previously. He was changed into something new and different. And that's what the word Yatsar means. Eve was the mother of all living with God's breath, not of the others. <laughs> okay, So she's not the mother of all races. Here it's talking about she's the mother of the Adamites. Unfortunately, she was also the mother of all Kenites, but not via Adam. That motherhood was via Nachash. Okay. And so when Adam had Seth from Eve, then the Sethite line, the pure-blooded Sethite line, followed, followed from there. And so clearly the Bible details these two seed lines from that point on with the seed line of the Kenites in Genesis chapter 4, the latter uh, verses, and Genesis 5, the seed line of the Sethites, the pure-blooded Adamites, and the, the rest of the Bible is about that. In fact, Genesis 5.1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That is the offspring, the genealogy of Adam. So I was amazed. When I started writing my book, The Great Impersonation, I had skimmed through the Bible because even when I was in college, I took comparative religion to find out, you know, well, what is the Bible really saying? And I've heard, and I grew up Catholic, and I heard all these fairy tales from the Catholic priests. And then I went to various Protestant denominations who basically repeated the same fairy tales about the first few chapters of Genesis. And they couldn't answer any questions like, well, where did Cain get his wife from? If there were only three people on the earth, Adam, Eve, and Cain, because he had already killed Abel, where did he get his wife from? And they all had to make guesses. But they're totally ignoring Genesis chapter 1, which tells us all of the species, all the non-Adamic species, including the hominids, were created in Genesis chapter 1. Beast of the field. And in Jonah 3.8, we're clearly told that there are beasts living in, in uh, that, that territory, Assyria, northern Assyria, that uh, these beasts had hands and feet, vocal cords, and could even worship God. So that, that's, that's a hominid, folks. That's not a four-legged beast. That's a two-legged beast. So uh, clearly, the Bible teaches that there's beasts of the field who are hominids, not necessarily four-legged. You have to look at the context to determine whether it's a hominid or a four-legged beast or quadruped. So, of course, the, this is the type of study, Bible study that nobody outside of identity has ever done. So, let's continue. He, so, he continues, This indicates that there are those with the Spirit, that's one category, and those having not the Spirit. That's a completely different category. And he, he cites Jude, verse 19. So, there are two kinds of hominids. One that have the holy, that is the set-apart spirit. Holy does not mean righteous or pious because the Israelites were holy throughout their entire existence but not necessarily righteous. So that word only means set-apart. Set-apart created by Yahweh for a special purpose. 
and those having not the spirit. That means all the other races and even some of those of the white race who have rejected the spirit. Too bad for them. The latter is the natural man who cannot receive the things of God. Hello? Why are you trying to save those beasts? Preacher after preacher after preacher has come back from Africa and stated, Well, I spent umpteen years trying to convert these blacks to Christianity. And a few days after I left, they reverted to their type. I wasted my entire career in Africa trying to convert blacks to Christianity. It's a waste. They're not meant for it. Christianity is the white man's religion, and it's exclusively the white man's religion. Now, if some other races adopt the principles of Christianity, they will be better off for it, but we're not supposed to be preaching to them, because it is a waste of time. It is a total waste of time, because they haven't got the capacity, they haven't been given the Spirit, as Jude, verse 19, 1, clearly states. The latter is the quote-unquote natural man who cannot receive the things of God from 1 Corinthians 2.14, statement by Paul. But he may become very religious, yeah, worshiping idols and sex sex magic, (laughs) right? (laughs) Our people get involved in that stuff too. Well, who do we learn that from? What we believe about these issues in Genesis conditions what we believe right through the Bible. Absolutely. uh, Truer words have never been spoken. Arnold Kennedy, you're absolutely right. If you get Genesis 1 and 2 wrong, then you can't understand the rest of the Bible. It's a book of genealogy. That's what it's about. So, I never learned this in uh, comparative religion. I never learned it from the Catholic Church. I never heard this in the Protestant churches. Only identity Bible scholars have ever realized that this is what the Bible is actually about. That's why we're the most hated denomination, if I can call it that. Group experience, group hug. <laughs> that, that We're the only ones who teach this. Why do we teach it? Because it's true. Because that's what the Bible says. So let me repeat what he says here. What we believe about these issues in Genesis conditions what we believe right through the Bible. If you don't get Genesis 1 through 3 correct, and actually 1 through 5, if you don't get Genesis 1 through 5 correct, then the rest of your study in the Bible will be incorrect, period. You're not going to learn anything from the Bible from that point on if you get these first five chapters wrong because they are about genealogy. From this, we can see that there is no problem about where Cain found a wife. He found her in the Jewish ghetto. It was from amongst those who were not living souls. Thank you, Arnold Kennedy. And he's not even a two-seed liner. Because trees as trees cannot have the knowledge of good and evil. Another verse they overlook. Oh, no, that's an apple tree, they tell us. The trees in the Garden of Eden are shown to represent human family trees. We can see this through scripture in such places as Ezekiel 31. Behold, 
The Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon. Then it talks about all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. They envied the Assyrian. Why? Because the Assyrian Empire was very powerful and huge and incorporated, subsumed many other nations. And thus relating this back to the Garden of Eden as a tree. What's the tree of life, folks? It's the genealogy of Yahshua Messiah from Adam and Eve through Seth. That's the tree of life, folks. Without discussing what Satan as the enchanter or serpent means, he's avoiding the two-seed line issue here. <laughs> I knew Arnold. We had exchanged many emails while he was still alive. We can see a seduction of Adam through Eve to divert to another purpose instead. Hmm. He does say that there was a seduction. Is it a physical, sexual seduction? Well, in the New Testament, Paul says Eve was seduced. When you look at the definition of the Greek word for seduced, it means seduce totally. Seduce completely. That's pretty straightforward as far as I'm concerned. These were the nations in the garden that Adam, who had become a living soul, was to cultivate or supervise. Not mix with, folks. Supervise. Take dominion over. Without discussing what Satan is, uh, it, what it means, we can see a seduction of Adam through Eve to divert to another purpose instead. We're not... Universalism? Multiculturalism? Who's responsible for that in the world today? The same beast that seduced Eve, namely the perfidious Jew, is because they are the offspring of Cain. His offspring, Cain's offspring, is still determined to destroy the white race. They have not stopped doing that. But our people, like Eve, have the wool pulled over their eyes. They're fooled by Satan and his promises of a multicultural bliss, which has never once happened. Whenever the white race, whatever white nation has ever engaged in race mixing, usually as a result of bringing in non-white slaves, that's the starting point of the decline of that civilization. This has happened hundreds of times without fail. So anybody who thinks that uh, multiculturalism is going to result in some kind of paradise you're a fool. You're an absolute fool. You've got to get real. You've got, got to get real. He continues, We are not discussing here if Cain was a sexual product of the seduction. He doesn't want to go there. <laughs> we find both the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and as it was then, so it is today. Well, you don't have to say that Eve was sexually seduced and bore Cain as a result of that sexual seduction. You can start with Genesis 4. And the Bible clearly delineates the two. And those two seed lines are separated throughout Scripture until the very last day. So even if you're not a two seed liner, this much is obvious. So, he continues... And as it was then, so it is today, with one seed hating the other, 
in no way have they now become the same. And they never will, because the Jews aren't going to accomplish this. They've been trying now for 6,000 years. And to their dying day, to their last day, the Jews will continue to try to destroy the white race through race mixing. Because that's the most subtle form of warfare, and the vast majority of white people don't see it. But that's why the remnant is here. Yahweh has selected his remnant so that the truth will never die. It's alive in us, two seed liners, and some of these single seed liners as well, because they know the Bible is about genealogy. He continues, That is why Jesus could say of the Edomite leaders of the Judean nation, quote, Ye are of your father the devil. Ye are of your father the devil. And that's just not a moral judgment. That is a genealogical statement. One of the most, yes, that is a fact, Bavaria fellow. Thank you. <laughs> These are genealogical racial facts. It's not, this is not spiritual stuff. It is moral stuff. But it's not spiritual stuff. The, the problem being, if you're immoral, you can't hold the spirit. Hello, all you Adamites listening to me. If you are immoral, if you are unrighteous, if you are not an overcomer, you will not be able to contain the spirit. It'll burn you up. What did Jesus say of this last generation? You nauseate me, those of you who are lukewarm. Are you lukewarm? Or do you have the Spirit? You can't have the Spirit if you're lukewarm. You've got to be burning with desire to bring in the kingdom. If you're not burning with desire to bring in the kingdom, you're lukewarm. What good are you? Sorry if I'm lecturing you. <laughs> but what I'm telling you, you know it's the truth. So let me complete this, uh, repeat this, because, man, this is good stuff from Arnold Kennedy. Uh, this is his article, Race in the Creation Story of Genesis. Again, you can search for this online. Arnold Kennedy, Race in the Creation Story of Genesis. I remind you, he is not a two-seed liner, but he understands that the Bible is a book of genealogies. That is why Jesus could say of the Edomite leaders of the Judean nation, quote, Ye are of your father the devil, meaning sons of. This is not spiritual talk. Because that whole chapter, uh, this whole pericope, begins with Yahshua's most famous statement, You shall learn the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Okay? He was speaking to Israel. But the Pharisees that were in the audience, because he was speaking to multi-culti audiences, people came from all over the territory and from other nations to hear him speak, because his fame had grown. And, uh, and of course, uh, Caesar instructed Pilate to have a spy 
listen to what Jesus said in order to, to determine whether or not he was an insurrectionist. And Pilate, after the report from the spy, said, no, he doesn't like the Pharisees. He has nothing bad to say about Rome. He even said, pay your taxes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's better to pay your taxes than get your head cut off. Or they could do even worse to you. So we are a captive people, and under our captivity, we have to be smart. We have to be smart. I can't tell you how many people I know who uh, have fought the system and tried to avoid paying income tax, and they've all wound up in jail. You can't do it by yourself. Yahshua wants you to become part of the Israelite community. Together, we can move mountains and destroy the beasts. But not as individuals. We don't have that power as individuals. But as a unified body, having the spirit, we can come out of this on the winning side. Now, that's why we have to unify. That's why Israelites have to come together at these feast days and celebrate who we are and why Yahshua put, uh, put us on this earth. This is exciting stuff. I mean, everything else is boring. I'm sorry. The Judeo-Christian religions are utterly boring. It's child's play compared to Christian identity. But that's why we're so hated. Because we have the truth and there's nothing they can do to argue against us. As one of our pastors say, the, the, the teachings of Christian identity are irrefutable and overwhelming. No one can argue against it. All you do have to do is quote scripture. But they don't, won't look at the scriptures. They simply will not look. So what do you have to do? You have to back them up against the wall and slap them in the face with a Bible before they open their eyes? Well, I guess that's what you have to do. Because we love our brothers and sisters enough to tell them, we want you to be awake. We want you to come back into the fold. It's the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter. And he continues. Oh, let me just uh, mention the very. Uh, the, the, I forgot to continue the thought from Genesis. I'm sorry, from John eight thirty two. You you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What what was the response of the Pharisees? He said, "They said, what do you mean free? We've never been in bondage to any man." That's John eight thirty three. We're not we're we're not slaves. So they took it in a genetic sense that well, this is Yahshua tricked them into admitting that they're not Israelites by that very statement because all the Israelites had been in slavery at one point or another but not the Edomites. Yeah, and they could say they're the children of Abraham through Esau but not through Jacob. So, let's continue. I mean, this is really good stuff. And this, and Arnold Kennedy is a non-seedliner. This is one of the best dissertations on the genealogies ever written. This is great stuff. So, so we're seeing that there, if you understand the scriptures, you have no problem finding where Cain found a wife. It was from the races that were already here. 
okay? And that uh, there's two kinds of genealogies emanating from the Garden of Eden. The other races were already all spread all over the planet. But from the Garden of Eden, these two genealogies came. Okay? And he says, with one seed hating the other, and in no way have they now become the same. And they still hate each other because that's the prophecy that they would hate each other until the judgment day. Adam comes from a root word meaning showing red in the face of a ruddy complexion, a description of part of the white race, for most of the white race. Even today, the serpent is attempting to reduce this seed by racial intermarriage and to eliminate it by other means. Yes, we at Identity understand this. Most white people don't. The churches have been seduced into believing that all races are the same in God's sight. Oh, but, but still, 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 oh, the Jews are God's chosen people. Even though the Jews say, we're not like you. <laughs> we're better than you. It is popular today to say that all cultures are God-given and thus that God can be worshipped within any cultural form. Now we know that's a total lie. An absolute lie. But in the Bible, God's people are instructed, learn not the way of the heathen. What are the churches doing, folks? Not only are they teaching the ways of the heathen, they're teaching the ways of the Antichrist. The word, especially John Hagee and Joel Osteen. Get, get, donate all your money to Joel Osteen and you'll be prosperous. You'll get a free huggy bear and a rubber ducky. The word way is given by strong as a course of life or mode of action. It's not the aisle leading down to the altar call. How have our people been deluded by modernism, these false doctrines of the churches, of churchianity? This, then, is a matter of culture that God's people are not to learn. But that's all that the churches are teaching today is the opposite of Scripture. There are many examples in Scripture about Israel practicing the ways and culture of the heathen following association with them. That's why we're not to associate with them. According to the abominations of the heathen which the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. So why are we following them around when Yahweh says we're not to even imitate them? The churches are imitation churches in both senses of the word. As it is the Lord who did the casting out, there is no excuse for any reassociation with either the people or the culture. Further, in 2 Kings 17.15, this is connected with rejecting the covenant made with the fathers. Quote, Rejection of the covenant means being cut off from the covenant. I can't argue with that one. That's spot on. Esau did the same thing. He sold his right to the covenant for a, a bowl of lentil soup. That's not, that's not honoring your heritage or respecting your heritage. 
That's cheapening it. Esau did the same thing, and we are warned in the New Testament, lest there be any fornicator. That means race mixing, folks, because we're talking about species here. Or profane person as Esau. Hebrews 12.16 The profanity is crossing a threshold or doorway according to Strong. Kennedy is referring to race mixing here, is my note here. It is popular doctrine today to open such a door and to encourage God's people to go through it. It is not difficult to follow the pattern of God's judgment following racial mixture through Scripture, but this is encouraged both within and without the church. Yeah, by the perfidious Jew who has infiltrated the churches, and the vast majority of so-called Christians today are Judeo-Christians, and they might as well be full-blown Jews for what they do and preach. Thus it can be seen that any apparent breakthrough following years of faithful missionary activity is only an apparent breakthrough. Yeah, in other words, any missionary who goes to Africa, Indonesia, China, Amerindia, is simply wasting his or her time. You know, it's funny that the Catholic Church has been the most successful in converting the Amerindians. That's because the Catholic Church is mother worship, <laughs> right? Mother Mary? It's mother worship. And idol worship, Easter eggs, Easter bunnies, worshiping crosses. Uh, even in uh, sophisticated societies such as America, Catholics will bury a statue of St. Joseph in their backyard if they want to sell their house. They believe they'll get a quicker sale or a better sale. It's idolatry, folks. You're supposed to rely on Yahshua, not on little statues buried in your backyard. But this is Catholicism, folks. There's no excuse for any reassociation with either the people or the culture from the co we are not to reject the covenant and that's what the churches have done they have utterly rejected the covenant it is not difficult to follow the pattern of god's judgment following racial mixture through scripture but this is encouraged both within and without the thus it can be seen that any apparent breakthrough following years of faithful missionary activity that is you're wasting your time if you try to preach to the other races the valid missionary activity is teaching the laws of God and bringing the other peoples into subjection. Whoa! Dominionism. I like it. This is real Christianity, folks. Dominion. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Okay. Uh, we have about six minutes left. We can see from Kennedy's analysis that he recognizes several facts from the Hebrew. One, that Adam in Genesis 1 is plural, not singular. Number two, that Adam in Genesis 2 is singular, not plural. Number three, that Adam, the Adamic race in Genesis 1, was created, bara. Number four, that Adam, an individual male of the already existing Adamic species created in Genesis 1, was formed, Yatsar, in Genesis 2. He was made better. He was perfected to the extent that he could have been perfected and it would have been an immortal species had they not sinned. 
We would have taken dominion right after that had Adam and Eve not fallen, fallen for the wiles of the perfidious Nakash, the daddy of the Jews, the daddy of the Edomites, the daddy of the Kenites. Number five, that because these obvious differences in the language of the Hebrew, G2 cannot, Genesis chapter 2 cannot be speaking of the same events depicted in Genesis 1. I would also add that Genesis 1 is speaking of planetary happenings. Genesis 2 is speaking only of the events in the garden. Number six, that at least one of the trees of the garden was another species of humanoid, since literal trees do not have any knowledge of good and evil, but this tree did, which means it was a humanoid tree with intelligence, fallen angel kind, and because trees cannot envy. We'd be in trouble if trees could envy. Number seven that the Bible clearly differentiates between the genealogies of Cain and Seth. Most Judeo-Christian theologians scrupulously avoid the study of the separate and distinct genealogies of the Adamites versus the Kenites slash Canaanites slash Edomites. Why? Because the Jews have paid them off to not teach this. Number eight, that the Adamites are commanded to remain separate from the heathen who are of the wrong genealogy, that is, seed line, bloodline. Number nine, that those of Adam's genealogical descent are to take dominion over the other races, even today. Genesis 1.28. Number ten, that the sequence of events described in Genesis 1 and 2 are in chronological order, not contemporaneous. This is the correct view of Scripture. So Kennedy, Swift, Compare. They all taught this, and others as well. It's a fair-minded rendering of the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis 1 and 2. So the doctrine that Fink and Emheiser have been teaching that the the events in Genesis 1 and 2 are contemporaneous is false. A very careful reading of those two chapters shows it's false. And uh, we're acting accordingly. And so my comment here, with about three minutes left, had Adam and Eve not sinned, planetary civilization would have developed according to the dominion mandate given in Genesis 1.28. Their sinless offspring would have contained the inbreathed spirit that would have expanded this benevolent dominion to the rest of the planet. But Satan had other ideas. Actually, this particular genealogy, the white race, did in fact progress to the point of having dominion over the entire world. In the 1800s, we did. But this dominion could not succeed because we are still in our fallen state. Also, the white race has given up this dominion because of the intense brainwashing campaigns of the Jews, Edomites and Khazars, and the Judeo churches who are trying to convert all the other races to a religion they can't possibly live up to. This factor is in fulfillment of the prophecy by Isaac made to Esau, that the time would come when Esau's descendants would have dominion over the descendants of Jacob Israel. And that prophecy is contained in Genesis 27, verses 30 through 40. This is another subject that the Judeo churches absolutely refuse to touch. So when did Esau 
take dominion over Jacob Israel. When did it happen? It happened when Napoleon let the Jews out of the ghettos. That's when it happened, folks. You can trace all the world's troubles to that particular event. And even Kevin MacDonald, who's a secularist, states that it appears that the Jews took dominion over the white race after the Battle of Waterloo or right around that time. Right? Because the Jews established their Mystery Babylon World Empire of Merchants at that time. And so, as Bertrand Compare says to conclude, Adam was told, Now don't you get mixed up with these pre Adamic races who have evil so ingrained in them that you are not going to be able to lift them out of it. They will make you like one of them. And only the pastors of Christian identity have observed that when we try to convert the other races to our religion, we wind up practicing their religion. It does not work. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. See you all next time. <laughs>